Welcome to this podcast from the Environmental and Energy Law Program at Harvard Law School. Today, staff attorney Hannah Viscara speaks with our executive director, Joe Goffman, about the environmental legacy of George H.W. Bush. Joe shares his unique insider's view as he reflects on one of the greatest contributions any president has made to public health and the environment. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Former President George Herbert Walker Bush passed away in the last week. Uh, As my hometown, Houston, and the rest of the country mourns him and considers his legacy, we are fortunate to have in our office someone who witnessed firsthand how President Bush approached the environmental regulation uh, at a time when many in his party had stopped viewing environmental protection as a bipartisan issue. Joe, you had a special vantage point from which to see President Bush engage on environmental policy issues. What were you doing in the late 80s and early 90s? Well, thanks, Hannah, for for teeing this up that way. The decisive years in which President Bush uh, forged this particular part of his legacy spanned from, I would argue, the summer of 1988 Um, until November 15, 1990, when he signed into law the Clean Air Act Amendments of 1990. So that spans the time when he was a presidential candidate through about the first half of his term. In that time period, uh, I was uh, a senior attorney at the Environmental Defense Fund for about a year of that period. And then I went to become associate counsel to the majority on the Environment and Public Works Committee of the the Senate. And President Bush promised during his campaign, that you mentioned the 88 campaign, to introduce legislation on air pollution. How big of a break was this from his predecessor, from Reagan, who he was Reagan's VP? Yes, he he was. It was was a significant break. And what candidate, then-candidate Bush, liked to do was say things on the campaign trail trail, such as, I want to be the environmental president, or I want to be the education president. And in late August of 1988, he gave a major speech on the environment, and he said words to the effect that uh, the time for the study of the problem of acid rain has ended, and if I'm elected, I will introduce legislation that will result in millions and millions of tons in the reduction of the air pollution that causes acid rain. And that represented a decisive break from the Reagan administration. Candidate Bush and his brain trust have said, and I've heard this, I've had conversations with them where where they reported this, they looked at the electorate as being very polarized. Ronald Reagan may be remembered now um, with fondness, um, but the public was really split on his presidency, um, and he really was seen as a very harsh, if you will, militant um, political leader. And candidate Bush was concerned, as were his strategic advisors, that what were called at the time soccer moms would turn from the Reagan administration and look for a, a, a... a less polarizing alternative. Bush decided that he wanted to be the less polarizing alternative, and he reckoned that breaking with Reagan on environmental issues would signal to the public that he was a different kind of Republican. It wasn't so much that he was appealing to the environmentalist constituency. He was appealing to swing voters who saw 
environment as a marker issue. And that's really one of the reasons given by his strategists for his elevating the environment on the campaign trail. And the effect of that is to have or was to have created a break with the Reagan administration that felt the pressure throughout the 80s from the science community and from advocates and from certain states to do something about acid rain. Throughout the 80s, the scientific uh, analysis and investigation of the observed phenomena of forest dibacks and uh, and uh, clear water stream poisonings was uh, was observed and studied, and the general consensus was that the emission of oxides of nitrogen and sulfur dioxide um, from power plants across the country, and I should say coal-fired power plants, resulted in an atmospheric phenomenon that produced acidic deposition. In other words, acid rain was formed in the atmosphere and it came down in an, in an acidic form and had this direct adverse effect on uh, forests and, and aquatic life. And it seemed clear to a lot of people that uh, the way to solve the problem was to require coal-fired power plants to install equipment to reduce their SO2 and NOx emissions. Well, the Republican, or I should say the Reagan administration, wasn't going for that. Um, the Republican caucus in the House and the Senate was following the lead of the Reagan administration. Uh, and the Reagan administration managed the problem by sponsoring extensive studies of the issue. So when Bush said, the time for study has ended, the time for action has begun, um, he was breaking not only with the Reagan administration, but he was breaking with his, his party. And he really was neutralizing the partisan valence um, of, of, of the environmental issue. Bush's EPA administrator, Bill Riley, has been interviewed a couple of times this week about how he came to that job out of the World, I think it's the World Wildlife Foundation. Yes. And, you know, he, he spoke a bit about, he described a man committed to this change, to that, that transition from Reagan and that uh, change in direction and taking on this acid rain challenge. Do you think it was more than political? Is this something that you felt he was committed to? My sense is that he was uh, committed to it. But the first thing that President Bush had to do was form a coalition within his own government because among his advisors, including but not limited to Bill Rowley, was a spectrum of uh, views about how aggressive President Bush and his administration should be about dealing with acid rain and dealing with a range of air pollution issues. So what did he, coming into office with that background, how did he, how did he go about addressing this problem? How did he deal with those different factions in Congress and in his own administration? The Bush administration's effort it, that culminated in the Clean Air Act amendments amend of 1990 first came onto the radar screen, if you will, of the Environmental Defense Fund where I worked during the transition uh, in December. And we were approached to, not by Bill Riley, who may or may not have been even nominated yet, but by a couple of people on the transition team 
who were decidedly not environmentalists, but who were interested in using a new clean air bill to test out some regulatory innovations. And what these folks pitched to EDF was something along the lines of the following. President-elect Bush made a significant campaign promise to introduce a Clean Air Act bill. We think that that promise may have been decisive in swinging the electorate in his favor. Now he's got to deliver. We know there are going to be a lot of controversies around various pollution control initiatives. We know we have to build a coalition. We think that a way to expand our coalition is to not only do a full frontal assault on air pollution, but to use innovative instruments, innovative ideas, and bring people in on, on that path. You guys at EDF seem to be unusually open to thinking outside the box about how to do environmental policy. In fact, we noticed that EDF was involved in an exercise called Project 88, which focused on maybe a dozen environmental policy proposals that were all based on using market-based instruments rather than technology-based standards uh, known at the time as command and control. In fact, the lead staffer in putting that report together was a young economist uh, at EDF named Robert Stabens, uh, who is now um, one of the leading faculty members at the Kennedy School of Government. And it was that, that Project 88 report, Rob Stabens' work, uh, EDF's um, willingness to break with the environmental community that put EDF on the radar screen of Bush's transition team. So did you work with the transition team to develop some proposals before yes. he even got into yes. office? Yes. Um, um, you, you could argue that the very first words on paper that ultimately became the acid rain program in the 1990 amendments were created in the offices of the Environmental Defense Fund. You could even argue that they were created on um, my computer. <laughs> um, uh, and it, so it's your very humble way yes, <laughs> of exactly. saying that you, yeah. you put pen to paper on right. this issue. And, and, you know, it, like all great efforts, it was a team effort mm -hmm. of uh, a senior lawyer at EDF, a senior scientist at EDF, and a senior economist at EDF. And it ended up that basically Dan Dudek, who was the senior economist, and I spent a lot of time in Washington with the president-elect's transition team, the key members of which became part of uh, the White House Council of Economic Advisors uh, in one case and the White House Council's office in the other. Uh, and with them, we developed the, the idea of using what was then called marketable permits to reduce uh, acid rain, rain pollutants. So this was, what did this proposal look like coming out of, this is the proposal that the, the president put forth to Congress, yes, right? Yes, that's right. Um, so what did it look like going into Congress and how did it change? Well, that's really interesting because um, what the Bush administration did was uh, send up an actually fully drafted bill. Um, they had the executive branch, largely the EPA, draft a multi-title set of amendments to the Clean Air Act that addressed, there was a title for acid rain, there was a title, Title I 
uh, revising the provisions that addressed uh, ozone smog and the other NAx pollutants. There was a title um, that revi- uh, there was a title of the bill that revised Title II addressing uh, automotive emissions. There was a Title III um, which uh, purported to overhaul and eventually did overhaul the way uh, the EPA handled toxic air pollutants. So it was it was a comprehensive rewrite of the Clean Air Act, um, which had been in existence for 19 years at that time. Um, it had been enacted in 1970. It had been uh, reauthorized in 1977. And um, like all uh, dominant forms of human learning, there had been a lot of trial and error. Uh, and the states and industry and environmental lawyers had observed a lot of things about the first 15 or 20 years of the way the Clean Air Act was implemented uh, and uh, uh, agreed largely um, that that learning counseled um, uh, uh, significant changes across the board. Um, I'll even throw another title in there, two others. Um, uh, in 1986, the Montreal Protocol uh, addressing stratospheric ozone-depleting chemicals, uh, chlorofluorocarbons, was negotiated by the Reagan administration and ratified by the Senate. Um, and so there was a Title VI to the 1990 amendments uh, uh, intended to implement the Montreal Protocol. Um, and there was an, even a title that completely overhauled the way uh, individual source permits were issued. So this was the full banquet of, of policy issues. Um, that's, that's a little different than what we ended up with, which was a significant prog- progression and change yes. to, the, to the Clean Air Act. But what you're describing is a massive rewrite. <laughs> yes, it was a massive rewrite. And it was a, a massive rewrite. Um, it was a massive rewrite of existing titles and the addition of, I guess, three major titles. The acid rain title, uh, the stratospheric ozone depleting chemicals title, and the permits title. Um, And that that bill went up to uh, Congress, I think, in mid-June of 1989. As a courtesy, John Dingell, Democrat of Michigan, who was the chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee, introduced it um, uh, as a corresponding courtesy uh, Senator John Chafee, Republican of Rhode Island, who is the ranking Republican member, introduced it in the Senate. Uh, and then we were off to the races. Uh, and shortly thereafter is when I moved from EDF to be one of the staff attorneys uh, on the Senate Environment. So you got to Public follow Works your bill? <laughs> I got to follow my bill. And um, uh, just almost as an aside, um, it was a, a three branch of government experience for me, because after doing six intense months of lobbying the executive branch between the transition and the time the bill was introduced, I then went to the Senate and was, you know, virtually the sole draftsperson of Title IV and a couple of other provisions in the bill. I then spent a year at EPA leading one of the teams that drafted the proposed implementing regs. I then went back to EDF and discovered that the regs included a loophole. So I brought a litigation uh, in, DC, in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals uh, challenging the loophole. 
full circle, full all the circle. way around. Yeah, exactly. So what happened in, in the Senate with this bill, What in Congress? Um, what happened in the Senate uh, was, is that at least in terms of Title IV, the bill that the Bush administration sent up was in pretty good shape. Uh, after the word went out from the White House to the EPA that they wanted to use some kind of trading in, in, in the acid rain title, um, I spent an enormous amount of time uh, hanging out in the offices of the Air and Radiation, um, uh, the Office of Air and Radiation in EPA, who was responsible for drafting the bill, and I worked with a lot of staff there, and we thought through some, I think, pretty key ideas. In the course of that process, the proposal moved from being an emission rate trading bill to a an emission budget bill. In other words, we moved from emission rates to tons, and instead of trading in what were then called emission reduction credits, we moved to um, trading emissions allowances, um, which was a big, a big change. I mean, that was the, one of the things that made the whole thing credible. Because once you once you translate from emission rates to tons, then you're talking about a budget. Uh, a cap on total. So then emissions. people know what your exactly. facilities know what they have to deal with. And they the, know what what they uh, need to work uh, within. Yeah, and and the public knows that if you set say a 10 million ton budget for SO2, you're going to get a reality in which no more than 10 million tons are emitted. Under uh, up until that point, emission rate based uh, standards um, left the total emissions loading in the atmosphere somewhat uncertain. And emission rate credits were incredibly complex as a practical matter to define and quantify and then subject to, to transfer or trading. So as you're working on this bill and, and refining the details, working with EPA, uh, what is the coalition in the Senate that was supporting it? And were there, did Bush have to to step in to deal with his own party? Oh, oh yeah, big time. It was a, the the bill went up in June. Uh, the Senate had uh, hearings in lights in the fall. The Senate uh, did one or two markups, I think, at the subcommittee level and the full committee level, uh, and reported out a bill in December of 1989. Now, the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee on both sides was almost radically green. You know, some of the Republican members were to the left of some of the Democratic members, because back in those days, the division around environmental issues, or at least air pollution issues, had more to do with what part of the country you came from and what kind of energy that part of the country either uh, mined or used than with party affiliation. And I think it was widely recognized at the time that the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee bill came out pretty hard left. Mm-hmm. And in um, the bill came to the floor, I think, in February, and uh, we couldn't get agreement to proceed on anything. The, Repu- the Bush administration felt completely outflanked by what was in this bill. Uh, the Republicans were no, nowhere to be seen. Um, the Democrats from coal states were even, even more nowhere to be seen. And it was just a bunch of dark green senators from EPW uh, sitting on the floor wondering how we were going to get started. Well, it just so happens that the leading Senate champion of acid rain control, um, George Mitchell um, from Maine, was 
uh, enjoying his first session as Senate Majority Leader. Uh, and he got in touch with the White House and basically said, Clean Air Act amendments, uh, the Clean Air Act amendments are the president's top domestic priority. If you guys don't get up here and help us, the president's top domestic priority is going down. And what ensued was, I think, about 10 weeks of negotiation, almost round the clock. In the majority leaders' conference room, you'd have the, uh, you had almost the, the virtual equivalent of a triangular table. You'd have the, uh, the green Democrats and green Republicans on one side. You would have the uh, Democrats and Republicans from fossil fuel states and heavy industrial states on, on a second side. And you'd have the administration combination of White House people and EPA, EPA people on the third side. And that triad of negotiators worked through every title of the bill methodically, day after day after day after day. And uh, we would, uh, various amendments would come to the floor brought by senators like Al Gore, who were um, wanting to send messages, mm-hmm. I won't say grandstanding, wanting to say messages about yeah, how different, <laughs> different, parts, um, different parts of the bill needed to be strengthened. But once every single title was issued and these three groups agreed to it, um, they all went down to the floor in a unified phalanx. And we then went through a process of amendments being introduced. Mm-hmm. And the phalanx would confer and say, well, is this amendment inside our deal or outside our deal? If it was inside the deal, we'd take it. If it was outside the deal, we'd say it's outside the deal. And we would usually get those amendments voted That's down. That's a pretty well orchestrated. It uh, was, it was, event. it was, um, you know, it was an incredible two year exercise in governance mm-hmm. and in policymaking um, with, you know, every element playing its part. You know, it was an, it was a, an exercise in different parties using their potential veto power for leverage, but not for obstruction. And it, and it, it really did come down to the fact that George Mitchell was right. This turned out to be, next to the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, George Bush's top domestic domestic priority, and uh, ultimately the the thing passed. Um, what do we? What came out of that? You that process could not have ended up with a bill that looked exactly like what, yeah, no, what it started it, with. It, there were many, many, many changes. Um, a few things to observe: the notion of using emissions trading to reduce pollution was considered at the time absolutely radical. It was incredibly controversial. The mainstream environmental community hated it. Uh, the mainstream environmental community, um, which continued to mistrust the Republicans and Bush, used it as an illustration of or for why they should be mistrusted. And it wasn't until in the process of putting the Bush bill together within the executive branch and then moving it to the Senate that um, the sort of grand bargain was was struck. This is what it was. The Democrats and environmentalists would concede on the use of marketable permits. Um, but the Bush administration and the Republicans who were promoting a marketable permit-based approach on the grounds that it was um, a money saver, that it was a relative cost-saving device, would allow some of those costs 
um, to be dedicated to a greater increment of emissions reductions. So the Democrats, George Mitchell, if you will, got a deeper cut in emissions of SO2 than he might otherwise have gotten, and he would get a complete cap on emissions once all those reductions were achieved, and the Republicans would get this significant piece of regulatory innovation using, using a, a market for emissions reductions um, as a way of, 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 of achieving emissions reductions. So that marketable approach has had a lasting impact. That's one of the legacies of this bill that we've seen in various ways uh, in other legislation as well. Absolutely. The reason that people uh, who call themselves environmentalists, notably um, my my former colleagues at EDF and I, is that we actually thought that getting the obligation of sources, emission sources, uh, change from rates to tons was important. We thought that getting a cap was important. Um, we thought that demonstrating to society, if I can put it in such grandiose terms, that you could accomplish all this stuff at relatively low cost was important. Uh, and we also had our eyes on CO2, believe it or not. I mean, climate change was, was an issue starting in the mid-80s for the mainstream environmental community. And we thought that this was going to be a way to deal with CO2 emissions, and this would be a sort of proof-of-concept exercise. By the time we got to October of 1990, when the, the conference report, the final versions of the bill, were going to the House floor and the Senate floor for final debate and vote, and by the way, the vote was something like, uh, in the House, like 400 to 35, and equally overwhelming in the Senate, every single member who spoke made sure to put in his or her speech a reference to this innovative market-based system. It was the, you know, it was the um, aphrodisiac of all political aphrodisiacs. Everybody loved it. And the acid rain implementation rules came out of the agency relatively seamlessly. In fact, they had been negotiated through a federal advisory committee, ACT advisory committee. Uh, It was smooth sailing. They were... you know, the, the, the program tr- turned out to be a dream to implement from the EPA's perspective, and it started to get imitators. Southern California imitated it um, and put together a, a, a NOx program for, for smog. Um, the Northeast states started to imitate it for summertime NOx. Uh, the EPA itself, under Clinton, used it for dealing with summertime NOx. It even proved to be the template for the Kyoto Protocol, which for industrialized countries it was a sort of international cap-and-trade system. The Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration, which was largely uh, ambivalent, let's say, about implementing the Clean Air Act, went overboard in trying to use trading um, uh, to deal with some problems, uh, uh, some, some implementation issues or implementation programs. And both California and the Northeast states uh, used cap-and-trade as the core um, of their respective uh, climate programs. Reggie. Uh, yeah. And, and Henry Waxman, who was a leading member of the House Energy and Commerce Committee in 1989, who essentially attacked Bill Riley during a hearing for being far too weak on air pollution 
um, when Raleigh was trying to defend the Bush bill and expressed profound, um, if not rejectionist skepticism about emissions trading, ended up using cap and trade as the, as the template for the Waxman-Markey climate bill. Um, in fact, this has become such a commonplace design for policy programs that the Republican Party, which is now uh, largely resistant to all manner of, of environmental protection, um, pretty much, if they haven't disowned George Herbert Walker Bush, they've disowned um, uh, cap and trade. Um, and uh, whereas once it had been the basis of, of a bipartisan, interregional entente in terms of environmental policy, it's now um, so commonplace that in, in our time, it's polarizing. And uh, while it may not be in the same place as it used to be, uh, and we certainly are seeing, seeing that now, you know, we can look back and to this experience that you had and that long process you went through with the administration, with uh, different factions in Congress, as and point to that specifically as what has changed dramatically our air quality in this country. Yeah, I, I think I think that's absolutely right. Um, it, so you, so um, the, the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990 um, really are, as a colleague of mine in the Environmental Protection Agency once said, you know, the greatest public health perpetual motion machine uh, the America's ever devised um, because it's structured in a way so that it continually renews itself as science and technology advance. Um, it, it, it demonstrated the use of this tool, marketable permits, that can be used again and again um, by different jurisdictions to solve uh, a range of a certain kind of air pollution uh, uh, problem. Um, and uh, air quality in this country has uh, increased dramatically in the, I think about three or four years ago, the EPA did a study, a massive study that was actually mandated by the Clean Air Act, um, showing uh, vast improvements not only in air quality across the country, but in public health outcomes um, uh, over a period of time when, when the economy measured by GDP uh, grew uh, uh, more or less steadily and certainly dramatically. Um, so, it, it, you know, it, George Bush clearly believed in governance. Um, he, he believed in building uh, coalitions because, as I said, he had to do it within his own administration uh, before he could even get his bill, uh, you know, out the door, so to speak. And he assembled a, a, a team of negotiators that uh, went to the Hill and built complex coalitions both in the House and in the Senate. And then again, when the House and the Senate each of which had passed slightly different bills, had to go into legislative conference with each other. Um, there, are, there are many, many facets to uh, George H.W. Bush's legacy, but um, this, is, this is one that's uh, pretty close to a, a clear-cut positive one. Well, Joe, thank you for sharing your memories and reminding us of the important bipartisan actions that made those improvements possible. No, thank you. 